Can we trust the Genesis account of creation? That is a good question. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Church Questions, a place where listeners like you can ask questions about theology, history, leadership, church culture, or anything else having to do with successful Christian living in today's world. I am your host, Pastor Don McKegg. Today's question, can we trust the Genesis account of creation? Boy, oh boy, if you are a person of faith, which honestly, why are you listening to a podcast called Church Questions if you aren't, please pray for me, because this is a hot-button issue. Man, there's a lot going on with this question. There's a lot of questions under this question, and we're going to try to jump into as much of it as we can. We're going to talk through... Um, trusting the Genesis account of creation, the doctrine of creation, and understanding why it's important that we think God made everything. But on top of that, comparing that to the natural science worldview of the age of the earth and the age of humanity, uh, comparing notes on what the Bible says about our creation versus evolution. I mean, we are, we are in it, Jack. We are in it. So we are going to get into it. And I love these kinds of questions because there is so much going on. There's so many things to answer. Um, Side note, before we jump into things, I am leaning heavily on a book called Christian Theology, Volume 3 by Millard Erickson. Uh, This was a textbook that I had in school, and I think that this guy does a phenomenal job of not only teaching uh, the right way to believe, necessarily, like his way of believing, but other viewpoints of theology. So you can check my work, or if you just want a really good theological book, try Millard Erickson. So can we trust the Genesis account in that? We're going to talk through things like age of the earth, age of humanity, um, because the Genesis account of creation, as we're just getting on the same page, if you were to use what we have in Scripture and track things back, um, chronologically. So we know Jesus was around, uh, was, was walking around, uh, about 2000 years ago. Um, and then, you know, Israel, there's a couple thousand years there, um, all the way back to Abraham. And from there we get to Noah and from Noah back to Adam. And, uh, you know, when we put all of those pieces together, allowing some fluctuation of the creation account coming out of scripture is that God, Potentially, God made not only the earth and outer space, but humanity about 6,000 to 10,000 years ago, depending on how you look at the whole thing. Uh, A terminology that has been used for people that take that stuff literally is, uh, is young earth or young creationism. They believe that the earth is actually pretty young. To contrast that, what natural science, um, I have to be careful how I word this, Um, most scientists believe that the evidence is pointing to the age of the earth being roughly 4.5 billion years old, and that humanity, uh, as we would understand humanity, 
is about 200,000 years old. Of course, the universe is older than that, and there are uh, would the universe would be older than that, and there are versions of humanity like the Neanderthals uh, that would be a little bit older than 200,000 years after that. So, um, you know, look, I'm not the best at math, but I feel like uh, there's a pretty big gap between 4.5 billion and 10,000 or even 6,000, so that's a pretty big discrepancy, and I'm of the opinion that the end of the 20th century was kind of one of the big eras for the fight and the discussion over all of these things. So we're going to be looking at, can you trust the Genesis account of creation? Because in that, we're going to have to answer age of the earth, age of humanity, where we all came from. When we look at things, where did those things come from? All of that is wrapped into this question because the Genesis account, if taken literally, is that God made everything six to 10,000 years ago. So that's what the Genesis account is, is that if we're taking it at literal face value, that's what the Genesis account in Scripture is going to tell us. But now we've got natural science disagreeing with those numbers. And this is where a lot of the debate has been. This is where a lot of the fight has been. And this is why I ask for prayers as we dive into all of this, because I don't necessarily want to get caught up in the fight. And the reason I don't want to get caught up in the fight is I don't necessarily see the need for a fight. I am not in the camp. I am not of the opinion that faith and, and science are at odds with one another. I'm really not. Um, and I I figured out a long time ago that a lot of a lot of faith people really like being against the scientific community, and a lot of people in the scientific community like being against people of faith. They just they've picked a camp and they don't want anything to do with the other one. But I'm not sure that that's really the best approach. And I know that I'm not the only one that feels that way. There are people of faith and science that are trying to wrestle with this question of, okay, the experts, most of the experts, uh, not all the experts, most of the experts are saying 4.5 billion years old, but the Bible's saying six. This isn't even close. So how do we find answers to this? Because here's my thing. Faith and religion are not at odds, or sorry, faith and religion. Faith and science are not at odds with each other because both are attempting to discover the truth. And truth, I do believe, is absolute and that it is rooted in God. And faith and science may be coming from different pathways, but if they do ultimately find truth, they will both find truth. God. They are allies looking for the same thing, yet because we're coming at it from different approaches, we've got this, this big, awful fight going. And trust me, there's fights, and I get the fight. I do get the fight, because what we're going to look at is how fundamental the, the notion that God is creator, how fundamental that is to the Christian faith. And you really are hard-pressed to develop the rest of the doctrines that Christianity holds dear without that first. Likewise, so much of the natural sciences um, and even behavioral sciences are rooted in things like evolution and rooted in this long-term time frame. Uh, and so, you know, we're, we're talking about two camps where we're addressing foundational struggles now. 
So I 100% get it, but I wish that where we could do less fighting and more let's work towards the middle kind of thing. Um, and I realized how few people actually wanted to meet in the middle back when I was in college pursuing my undergrad. My undergrad degree is in theology, and uh, there was a semester um, where I had the opportunity to take a class called Faith and Science. I think it was Faith and Science. Could have been Religion and Science. Could have been Science and Religion. Could have been, uh, I don't know. But it was, you get the idea. And there's two things that struck me about this class um, that showed me something beyond just the information of the class. And the first is that um, I got, this was, a theolo this was a theology credit, like this one on my transcripts as a theology credit, but it wasn't taught by somebody from the theology department. It was taught by somebody from the science department. And this guy, he was actually the father of a friend of mine. She was going to the school too, the university as well. Um, but he, I mean, he's the perfect example. He's a man of science and a man of faith. And you, you could tell by the way that he talked about all of this and that he wanted this class to happen that, uh, that he was, he didn't need, he didn't see the need for his two worlds to collide, that there was a lot of agreement as they were working through the areas where they disagree. But the other thing, and this may have even been the more telling thing that too many people are not willing to cross to the other side of the camp to see what's going on is, um, there were only two people that signed up for this class. Now, look, I did not go to a huge school. Um, but you know, for my theology classes, it was it was pretty normal to have thirty people in it. And for my science, my other science, one of my other science classes I had uh, that was more like a general ed science, um, there was it wasn't like a big lecture hall of I don't know eighty, hundred people, something like that. So the classes were bigger than that, uh, and only two people, only two people, wanted to show up to try to figure out how to bridge the gap between science and religion. Um, also, I felt really bad for the other guy in the class because um, I I didn't go to every class. I missed like two or three. And uh, I just knew when I was missing some of those classes, I was like, man, I bet it's super duper awkward, just the professor and this one student. Uh, but hey, you know what? It was a good class. I got a good grade. Um, I really enjoyed it. But what that showed me is uh, is that maybe not everybody's willing to cross that bridge. And so one of the things I'm hoping to do with this podcast is take those two polarizing sides and show you guys how to meet in the middle and not through compromise because compromise says I get to keep this but I'll get rid of this. I think that there's just other ways to look at things where maybe we can meet each other a little bit more in the middle. Uh, so let, what do we, when we say creation, what do we mean? This is what we mean. The work of God bringing into being without the use of any pre-existing materials, everything that is. So everything that exists, everything that you see, everything that you experience, touch in your hands, with your eyeballs, everything. God brought it into being, and he brought it into being without any use of any pre-existing materials. That's creation. I'll, I'll figure out what I'll, I'll I mean, I'll, uh, I'll figure it out. Yeah, I'll figure it out and tell you guys. Um, I'll, uh, I'll tell you guys why all of those things are important. But I think the first thing that we need to answer is why does 
creation even matter? Why does it matter that God made everything? All we need is Jesus and salvation, right? I mean, why do we need to... Because this is the thing that I've heard a lot of, uh, at least on the Christian side of things, I've heard a lot of people, they just got tired of the fight. And I totally understand getting tired of the fight. And and I, I rely on other scripture that says we shouldn't be quarrelsome, we should be kind to one another, we should be servants to one another, the stronger vessel should, uh, should bend to the weaker vessel. There's a lot of things that we can stand on for why we shouldn't be fighting non-Christians about this particular issue, or why we shouldn't be fighting other Christians about this particular issue, but I don't know if the best approach is to just not care about it. I don't know if that's the that's the best approach to say I'm tired of fighting, I just don't care anymore because God being the creator of all things does matter. It matters frankly a lot. So we're going to ask this question, why does it matter? that God made everything, because wouldn't it be a lot simpler if we just didn't have to worry about it? I mean, yeah, life would be a whole lot simpler if we just didn't have to worry about stuff. I'd love it if I didn't have to worry about taxes, boy. Uh, you know, I'd, I'd love it if I didn't have to worry about counting calories. Um, but there are things, just because we ignore them, doesn't mean that they're going to go away. And the importance of God being creator is one of them, particularly um, when we're looking at some of the theological side of it, but we also need to be paying attention to some of the timelines and and what Scripture says, because there's there's something at stake here when we ask the question this way, can we trust the Genesis account of creation? And, and this is one of the reasons why a lot of Christian people um, get really um, hot about this particular issue, because if the origins of everything are different than what the Bible says. Now we are really in hot water with the fallibility and infallibility of Scripture. If we can't trust something as important as the creation account, can we trust everything else? So there's a lot riding on this from the trusting Scripture standpoint, but there's also a lot riding on this from some of the um, theological ideas that have come from God being the Creator. So there's a lot of reasons why this matters that we need to pay attention to it. But before we jump into why it matters, I need to clarify something else. I've got preambles on preambles, boy. Um, so um, I am not a professional scientist. That may shock some of you, but it's true. I am not. The only science training I have is the same tra science training that everybody else has. Um, I, I took it in school, um, and you know, periodically I, I watch a... Um, a, a documentary or a YouTube video or something like that about something that interests me. But most of my information about science in this context is coming from the theological side. And so this is the this is the clarifying thing that I need to this is the clarifier that I need to make. I am a theologian. This is the perspective that I bring into this conversation. I, I don't want to give off the impression that I am as good with the science material as I am with the religious material, because I'm not. Um, the, the, the theological world is my world. That is my lane. And so that's the really only way that I know how to answer this question. So the question, can we trust the Genesis account of creation, um, even if it was something like, how old is the earth, or... Um, where did it all come from? Parenthetically, it has to be from a theological perspective um, because there's just things about science. Like I say, I know broad strokes, I know big ideas, but a lot of the nuance, I'm just being honest with you guys, I don't, 
I don't feel as confident in those areas as I do in theological areas. So that is absolutely going to color my opinion. That is absolutely going to color my worldview in all of this. Um, I wish that I could be an expert in everything, but believe it or not, uh, I I cannot be. So I have I I I am giving you that as a pref or a, as another preamble, another uh, preface to the whole thing. So why does it matter? Why does God being the creator even matter? Again, we're, we're addressing, can we trust the Genesis account? And the first thing that we need to know about the Genesis account is that it says God made everything. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1.1. Why does that matter? Well, first is the Bible places great significance on the fact that God created everything. So much so that the whole Bible, all of Scripture, starts with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Um, just as a, as a clarifier, if you have not uh, heard my podcast on where Paul went when he was caught up into the third heaven, um, you should go listen to it. It was a really fun podcast to do. Um, but I, I make a point there that uh, when the people were writing this, the, the Bible, they didn't necessarily have words for like, sky, outer space, and the place where God lives. So they just, they looked up and they knew they were different. They knew sky, outer space, and where God lived. They, They were different, but they just looked up and saw stuff, and so they called it heavens, plural. Um, and all of that is heavens. So when we read in Genesis, God created the heavens and the earth, literally what it's saying is God created the sky, which we might call the atmosphere, um, he created the outer space and everything in outer space, which that's no small feat, um, as well as the spiritual realm where he lives and earth. So that's what that's what that's saying. And the Bible places great significance on God being the creator. That's how we are introduced to him, and that is the foundation in which everything else we know about God is built from. He is the creator. On top of that, Understanding the nature of Jesus and the unique nature of Jesus being both God and man is linked to God being the creator. Genesis 1.1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John 1.1 says, in the beginning was the word. And the whole purpose of, not the whole purpose, but one of the main purposes or themes in the Gospel of John is to address the divinity of Jesus, that he wasn't just some man, but he was God made flesh. And so understanding, like, God, and, and, we're, and we'll get into more of this, but just understanding that he's creator is fundamental and foundational, so much so that that's how Scripture starts, and understanding the nature of Jesus is even tied to this. So it's, it's the Bible places great significance on it. Number two, a significant part of the church's faith, um, there's, it's highly important aspect of the church's faith and its teaching and its preaching. This is a central theme. This is a central thing that is taught about God, and it has been historically. 
So one of the things about the Christian faith is that the church, the history of the church and the development of theology go hand in hand. They're almost the exact same thing. If you want to study theology, you're going to have to study the historical context that drew out these theological truths hidden in Scripture. Likewise, if you want to study church history, you're not going to understand everything that's going on if you don't also understand the theological implications of things that happened. Um, and so we, we understand oftentimes theological developments through time. It's it's like we can put it all on a piece of paper, like this is what Christians believe, but sometimes it really helps to understand that these thoughts were developed over hundreds or thousands of years, and 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 that helps us kind of give a little bit of credence to the foundational ideas that helped develop other ideas, and God being creator is one of those early foundational ideas. The Apostles' Creed, which is probably the earliest creed that we have, um, at least one of the earliest creeds that we have that we're still using, um, it starts with this, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. So this is one of the first creeds that we ever had, and we've held on to it, which tells us all other theological ideas that we've developed since then, like since seven, 1,700 years ago, agree with this idea. So it's it's crucial to that. Um, and uh, and so, yeah, it's it's just a part of our, of our history, but I don't mean that in that we have to hold on to traditions. When we say that something is a part of the, the Christian history, in a theological perspective, what we're saying is that it's closer to a foundational idea that's helped develop other ideas. So number three, why does it matter that God is creator? It affects our understanding of other doctrines, which is similar to what I was just saying. Some of the doctrines that are affected by God being creator is our understanding of humanity's place as a creature. We are creatures. On top of that, what we see is that when God made everything, he made it good, and I'll dive into this in just a little bit, but he made everything good. But the fact that we are now sinful by nature means that it's our fault. It's not God's fault. So now we can develop the idea of salvation. Now we can develop the idea of atonement and redemption and reconciliation. There's a lot of things that are going into this just by understanding God created all things good, but if we're not good, what does that mean? Um, the the uh, Another doctrine is the rejection of dualism, which is a little bit of what I was just talking about. So dualism, if uh, Christian theology and Greek philosophy uh, made a baby, what you would have is dualism. Dualism essentially says if it is spiritual, it is good. If it is material, it is bad. Everything that you can touch, see, smell, taste is, is inherently bad. It is inherently evil. Um, and this is again some some Greek stuff, but uh, and and so there was a group in the in the New Testament. Paul was dealing with them, um, and and they existed for a long time called the Gnostics. Um, G N O S T I C S. I I don't know. I got lost in the spelling, but it starts with a G. Gnostics. It's similar to the word agnostic meaning wisdom or knowledge or something like that. But this was a cult. This was a Christian cult, and what they taught was this idea, if it's spiritual, it's good. If it's material, it's bad. Well, two big problems with that. One, it leads you to something called asceticism, which isn't necessarily bad, but it isn't also, it also isn't necessary. Asceticism is, I'm selling all of my possessions. I'm not going to own anything. I'm going to live this 
uh, beggar lifestyle, um, all for the pursuit of spiritual growth. That the way that I get spiritually mature is by uh, reducing the material things in my life. Um, and that's, I don't know, that's not necessarily a scriptural place unless you feel like, well, anyway, I don't want to get lost in this, but aestheticism um, is how you get from there. But really, here's the big issue, and this is what the Gnostics taught. If, if spirit stuff is good and earth stuff is bad, material stuff is bad, then there is no way that Jesus became human, that God, perfect, pure spiritual self, would defile himself to becoming a person, the, the evil, gross person. So in, what it was is that it was a spiritual projection, that, it, that, that Jesus wasn't actually a person. He was, a, he was made to look like a person. Here's the problem with that viewpoint. If Jesus wasn't human, he couldn't die. And if Jesus couldn't die, he couldn't die for our sins. And if Jesus couldn't die, he couldn't come back to life three days later. So now the whole concept of salvation is out the door, and we're back to a works-to-righteousness process by eliminating material things in your life and only living for the spiritual. So now salvation's tied up into all of this. Creation also um, looks at uh, God being sovereign over his creation and that creation is used to promote his glory. All of creation worships God, points to God, and that we can look at creation and it will eventually point us back to God. This is a principle that Paul talks about in Romans, but Psalms is heavy with talking about the the, the world crying out for the Lord in his worship. So now we can talk about sovereignty. Now we can talk about worship based on creation. Um, and another doctrine is this affirms the Trinity. Which, uh, you know, Trinity is always going to be impossible to explain. Always. Finite minds are trying to explain an infinite God. Simply cannot happen. But one of the ways that we describe or understand how the Trinity works within itself is through the process of creation. The Father thought of it. It went through the Son. And then the Spirit kind of did it. Like, like I said, I literally just made the point that you cannot get a good, like an actual good like analogy of the Trinity. So I'm about to give you one that's not perfect, but I hope it makes the point. It's like if you're trying to build a building, the father is the architect, the son is the the site foreman, and the, the Holy Spirit was the construction crew. Like all three of them do completely separate jobs. You can't claim that one's more important than the other one because without one, the whole project falls, but they all have different functions trying to do the same thing. Now, technically, that falls into modalism because I've separated God, but like I said, I'm trying. So the, those are just some of the doctrines that God being creator um, affirms. Fourth reason why it matters that God's creator differentiates Christianity from other religions and worldview. Literally, nobody else teaches creation like Jews and Christians. Nobody else. Um, Hindus have a close one. Hinduism has a close one, but... Um, really, it's still super duper different. So it's a, it's it it pushes against the idea that all religions are the same. No, they're not because we all have different origin stories. And if we all have different origin stories, then there's all different expectations of what we do now that we're here. 
Uh, number five, um, there's potent dialogue between Christianity and natural science about this issue, and we need to be informed about what's going on. We need to be able to discuss things in an intelligent way. We need to be able to understand when people bring us points. This is something that is important to where the church is in the culture right now. We don't want to totally detach ourselves from the culture. Um, but, uh, you know, we at least need to know the talking points, though we don't need to, like, dive all the way into all the stuff, even though, even if, I mean, unless you are very interested in those things. Um, so, though the discussion has often been contentious between Christianity and natural science, it is important that these two forces collide with this issue, because these are the prevalent worldviews, especially in the United States right now. Either God made it or someone else did, or something else did, and... If God did it, then what we have to rely on first is Scripture. If God didn't, then we can look at these other things. Um, but from the Christian side of things, even if God did make it, well, I mean, if, not just if, though God made it, what do we do with all of this information? Um, and so we kind of need to make sense of all of this. Um, and then the last one of why we need to know that God is the creator of all things Um well, because it's not just disagreements between Christians, Christianity, and the natural science community. It's disagreements between Christians and other Christians. Um, obviously, there's the evolution and creation point. I feel like this is one of the big issues. We are going to get into it, I promise. But the age of the earth and evolution versus straight-up creation, like, boom, there it is, creation, not started and then became, like, evolved into creation. Um, I know, personally, I'm very close with uh, Christian people who disagree on this issue, and you know it's uh, it's very unfortunate. But you've got the you've got the 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 hardcore literalist side that as soon as they find out that one of their Christian people might believe in an evolutionary mix and all of this, you start getting hit with stuff like, "Oh wow, I thought you were a Christian. When did you lose your faith?" Like you start getting hit with that kind of stuff. And, and people even questioning your salvation if you don't agree on the timeline of creation like they do. But you go the other side, maybe it's not in Christian circles, maybe it is, um, but certainly in non-Christian parts of the natural science community, that you're a dum-dum. If, you, if, if you're a young earth literal creationist, you're just a dum-dum. And anything else that you have to say is, is irrelevant because you are a dumb person. You are a silly person if you believe this, and I will not listen to anything you have to say. Well, sir, I'm just trying to tell you that we don't have the extra large fries anymore. That was a weird example. Don't worry about that. But you get shut down completely. That's my point. Um, you just get shut down completely if you have this view. Um, and so there's a lot of fighting between brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, and so we're going to look at here in a little bit some of the nuances and subpoints that maybe we can maybe we can find some more common ground in all of this. I'm going to give you guys a buzzword, though. It's called ex nihilo. Um, E-X space N-I-H-I-L-O. Literally means out of nothing. When we say that God is creator, this is the buzzword. When we talk about the nature of God, Trinity is the buzzword. When we talk about being made in His image, Imago Dei is the buzzword. When we talk about salvation, grace is the buzzword. This is the buzzword for creation. Ex nihilo. Out of nothing. Nothing. God created what we have without pre-existing materials. Um, and then there have been subsequent creations using those materials um, afterwards. So the important thing about 
the creation idea is that God made everything out of nothing. After that, he made some things from what he made earlier. Here's an example of that. When he formed Adam, he formed Adam out of the dust. So God first created the dust, then he made Adam. So we're agreeing to two ideas that first, God created all of the materials. Then, sometimes, God took those materials and did something else with them. And this is a point of contention that uh, a literal viewpoint of Genesis is, or the doctrine of creation, yeah, sorry, doesn't have to be a literal viewpoint of Genesis. This is something that the doctrine of creation is going to disagree um, or at least try to answer a question that natural science isn't ready to answer. The, the origins of everything, as far as I can still tell, that the, the consensus is still uh, on the Big Bang, which is literally everything that exists throughout all of the universe was at one point in time condensed to a tiny, like the, the size of a period on a page. It was all condensed to this tiny little dot, and it just got so, I don't know, spinning fast and all this stuff that eventually just, boom, exploded. Bang, everything now exists. And one of the hard questions that Christianity has an answer for, that natural science alone does not have an answer for, is where did all of those materials in the dot come from? It's like, okay, I get what you're trying to say. Everything that exists started from that dot. Where did that stuff come from that's in the dot? Christianity, the doctrine of creation, says that um, everything that is came from nothing. God created it out of nothing. Um, I'm not saying that God used the, the, the dot, but he could have used the dot, and we'll get into that. But uh, Christianity at least has an answer for where did all that stuff come from? God made it out of nothing. And look, I've got a ton of scripture here um, on, on the, this idea. Um, I'm not going to give it to you to because like I'm looking at this wall of text now with scripture. Um, I won't give it to you. Um, but I will, I will give you just a few, and then I'll tell you that the rest of it's kind of saying the same thing. Um, so, New Testament, there's this phrase, from the foundation of the world. That phrase is in Matthew 13, 35 and 25, 34, Luke eleven fifty, 50, John 17, 24, Ephesians 1, 4, Hebrews 4, 3 and 9, 26, 1 Peter 1, 20, Revelation 13, 8 and 17, 8. And there's a ton more that have similar ideas in the beginning of the world, in the beginning of creation, in the beginning of creation which God uh, created. All of that um, is, is pointing to the idea that the beginning of the creation and the creation of the world happened at the same time. Um, I got a quote here by Werner Forster. Um, These phrases show that creation involves the beginning of the existence of the world so that there is no pre-existent matter, meaning God didn't just create a whole bunch of stuff, sit on it for a while, and then make the earth. When he made stuff, he made the earth with it. Um, And another clarifier, there's something called process theology, which teaches that it's not that creation came out of nothing, it's that creation came out of chaos. Um, It's not how I see it, though God does bring order out of chaos. In this instance, in creation, God brought it out of nothing. God did not make merely a certain part of reality, 
with the remainder attributable to some other origin. He made all of reality. Everything that exists, God made. God made the heavens and the earth. If it exists, God made it. Where did it come from? Nothing. He spoke it into existence, which is like the coolest thing ever. Look, I get how dumb it is to try to like get you guys excited about how great God's imagination is. I mean, the dude made the platypus. He was like, ducks are great. Beavers are great. How about we combine the whole thing and just see what happens? Like, I, I, I get that God has a great imagination, but it just kind of floors me. Whenever I think about God was able to conceive the idea of something before something ever existed. Like, all that there was was him, and he was perfectly satisfied with himself and had the imagination to go, you know, let's get something. It's just this awesome—it's just an awesome thing. It impresses me, at least. I feel like it's a pretty awesome thing. So, moving on, what, uh, what are the theological implications— of the doctrine of creation, that God made everything. And this is where the rubber starts to meet the road. I needed to lay some groundwork really showing you, like, I addressed some of this in the why it matters stuff, but that was just to to kind of get people geared up. Like, okay, this is something that, that we do actually need to care about. But now when we start looking at the theological meaning of the doctrine of creation, we're going to start finding some of the reasons why there are fights between Christianity and natural science, or some scientists. And here's the first one. If God made it all, then there is no ultimate reality other than God. God made it. God rules it. God is in charge of it. It is impossible to escape God. That is not a message that a lot of people want to hear. A lot of people want to think that they have the ability to just pretend like God doesn't exist. Or if they believe it hard enough, and if they say it loud enough, or if they write enough books, or they laugh at enough religious people, then they're somehow going to be able to escape the idea that a creator is, the creator is paying attention to their lives. And that's not something that a lot of people want to hear. But there are a lot of people in the scientific community that do not want to hear that there is no reality without God. They don't want to hear it. And part of that, this is the, I talk about elephants in the room. Here's one of the elephants in the room. I'm talking about trying to build bridges. So I hope that this comes across as like advice to build bridges. On the scientific community, look, people of faith, stop ignoring science. I mean, the vast history of Christianity has been connected to higher education. Christians have always been people of education. We are a people of 
the book. We are people of philosophy. We are people of logic. We have always supported scientific efforts until very, very recently. Every major scientific breakthrough that has happened in the West uh, happened because the church funded it. I don't know when it became so popular to make fun of educated people but we got to get over ourselves about this one. There are highly intelligent people trying to understand God's creation. And I think that that is something that we should applaud, and that is something that we should listen to. Obviously, we, we look at Scripture first, and we have to weigh it against Scripture, but we, we can get over our attitude about um, rejecting science altogether. So there, I've picked on the faith side. If you are on the science side, and you are, for whatever reason, listening to this podcast. First, welcome. This problem, this may not be your cup of tea if you are a, a non-believing scientific person, but you want to know what this crackpot preacher has to say. Welcome. I hope I haven't disappointed you so far. But here's something that needs to be noted. There is the logic of science, which is the data, the information, trying to neutrally uh, with, or an unbiased way, figure out what all of that data means. There is the logic of science, and people should not have a problem with the logic of science. It's simply making observations and doing your best to make sense of what you see or what you observe. Nobody should have a problem with that. What a lot of Christian people have a problem with—remember, I just picked on us, us faith people, so I'm trying to help you. Here's what a lot of Christian people have a problem with. It's not the logic of science— it's the philosophy of science. It's the religion of science. Now, I get it. A lot of people just got up in arms about this. How dare you say that there is a, a, a philosophy of science or a religion of science? And I, and I, look, here's the thing. I, I was clear on the jump. I am not a scientific expert. I, I, it's not the world that I live in. It's not the thing that I study. I do my best for observing uh, but it's not it's not my expertise. I am, however, an expert on religious things. I am an expert on the things of religion and theology, and I know a religion when I see one. There are absolutely people in the scientific community who treat it like a religion. And so often what the fight is and what the debate is is not people of faith disagreeing with the data, it's one religious opinion pushing against another religious opinion. And so if you are one of these science people, here's what I'm trying to do for you. This is how I'm hoping that we can build bridges. Uh, you just heard me talk about faith people. We need to start uh, observing the data better. We need to start working with the data better. So you heard me say that. If you are in, the, if you are in that science field, uh, and, and I don't mean like a Christian who's also a scientist. I mean, you are not a believer, but you are all in that science field. And you are listening to this for whatever reason. Here is my—this um, is what I'm telling you that will help build bridges so that the Christian community will start listening to the data that you have. Either keep your religion out of it or at least be honest with us that you do have a philosophical viewpoint that—, that does kind of take the place of religion. Because here's the misnomer that a lot of people have. I know a lot of people want to think that they're actually superheroes in real life and that we are somehow able to just through willpower and intelligence overcome our coding. But here's the problem with that. 
God created us to be religious. Every single culture that has ever exist, existed anywhere in the world, whether it's a highly civilized big city, a little tribe in a jungle somewhere, literally every single tribe of people that has ever existed had a religion because God has made us to require it. Now, the idea is that once we are redeemed and back in his good graces, we'll be able to focus that desire towards him through Christ, but it's something driving all people. You cannot escape this drive. I, You just cannot do it. So I think that we will be able to have more honest and more helpful conversation if we can understand the difference between the logic of science and the philosophy of science. And the rubber is going to meet the road here because if your religion will not allow for God to exist, well, now we can have an honest conversation about what the real issues are. But this is one of the theological meanings of the doctrine of creation. There is no reality other than God. So if the discussion is actually a religious discussion on my God versus your God, now we're on the same playing field. Now we understand what the terms are. But if it's just about using data, I would say that there's not much data that I'm familiar with, granted not the expert, not much data that I'm familiar with that can definitively say there absolutely is no God. I just don't think you can say that. Number two, <laughs> there's seven of these. I'll try to work through them a lot faster than that because I want to get into like the age of the earth and there's a bunch of theories on that. Um, theological meaning of the doctrine of creation, number two, original act of creation is unique. Um, so like there was one creation and there won't be another one because it all exists. You can't, you can't create it all again because it's all here. Um, so number three, nothing that is made is intrinsically evil. This is swinging back to some Christian ideas. Um, that, and again, that dualism idea that things are inherently evil. No, when God made everything, he said it was good. Nothing is intrinsically evil. If it has become evil, it's through its own choice. God made everything to be good. So now uh, when things are happening, when bad things are happening in the earth, we can't blame God. And that's really the important part of this. God, why did you let that happen? Or why did you make that happen? It, that's not, it's, if it's, God made everything good. If it's now evil or bad, it's because somebody has turned it that way. Number four, um, it thrusts the responsibility of evil onto humanity. Well, that goes back to point three. If something bad happens, it's not God's fault. It's me or somebody else. Number five. Um, it guards against the depreciation of the incarnation of Christ. I already talked about this. If the material world were inherently evil, then God couldn't be human, and if God or Jesus couldn't be human. If Jesus isn't human, then he can't die. If he can't die, he can't forgive the sins. If he can't die, he can't be resurrected back to new life. Number six, um, theological meaning of the doctrine of creation. It's all made by God. So there is a connection and affinity among its various parts. In other words, people are people. We should get along with one another because we are all creatures. The distinction that we see in Scripture is creator and creation, not creator and this creation, this creation, this creation, this creation, and never they shall meet. It's there's a creator and there is creation. 
I don't care what color somebody is. I don't care what gender somebody is. I don't care where they come from. I don't care when they lived. We are people. People are people. That's kind of what that means. The word there is imago Dei, image of God. We're all made in the image of God. Um, so should tear apart racism, should tear apart politicalism, should tear apart ageism, sexism, because we're all creatures. Uh, so last one, number six. Um, it excludes the type of monism that regards the world as an emanation from God. Um, so there's a, there's a version of monism that teaches, and I used to actually believe this. I'll, I'll teach it from the perspective that I had it. So I used to have this idea that um, nothing can be, cre uh, matter can't be created or destroyed. So I had this idea then that if matter can't be created, then everything that exists that God created, he created from himself because he existed, so he just made it from himself. Makes sense um, in some degrees, um, but it starts to fall apart um, because it eliminates the distinction between creator and creation, because now creation is the substance of the creator. Where's the line between, where's the line of the divine? Man, somebody put that on a bumper sticker, please, and then you have to have like a three-page thing explaining it. Uh, so maybe it's not a good bumper sticker. But where's the line of the divine? If if everything that exists emanates from God, then, you know, why not just worship creation because it's divine? And so it really starts messing with stuff, which is why there needs to be a, a real distinction between the creator and the creation. Um, so there we go. Uh, the four areas that we have seen a struggle with science and the, the idea that God created it all. Uh, there's four areas. First one was astronomy. Copernicus had the gall. He had the gall to say that the earth revolved around the sun. That dude got in a bunch of trouble for it. The Copernican revolution that challenged the geocentric concept of the galaxy. Of course, Copernicus was correct, but uh, the church officials that he was dealing with at the time uh, didn't want him to be correct. Um, uh, and, and we still see struggles in astronomy, uh, judging from how quickly the universe is expanding, talking about the age of uh, everything from that perspective. Um, we look at astronomy to start answering questions about just how habitable um, the Earth is, that if it were uh, moved closer to the sun or further from the sun by just a degree or two, what it would do to us. Um, here's a fun little tidbit for you. Um, the Earth, I don't know if you've ever thought about this before, but, you know, this one's not going to shock anybody. Sun, a lot bigger than the moon, right? Yet when you look at them in the sky, they're the same size. In my opinion of God being creator, he created the earth to be in such a perfect position that the sun and the moon, though radically different in size because of their distances, look the same size in the sky. I just feel like that's really cool. So we look to astronomy things. Um, to try to answer both of these issues. Um, another one is geology, um, which is rocks and, and strata and that kind of stuff on the Earth's crust. 
Um, we, we often are going to use um, that to evaluate the age of the Earth. That's one of the main reasons why, we, why scientists believe that the age of the Earth is 4.5 billion years old, is looking at rock layers. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the creation idea would fly in the face of that, particularly when you in, uh, account for the Noah's flood, which we will get to. Um, biology, this might be the big one. It's probably now, these days, bigger than astronomy uh, because in biology you have Darwinianism, survival of the fittest, and evolution versus creation. And then the fourth one, which is the newest one, is anthropology or the study of people. Um, so one, the origins of, of humanity. Where did we come from? Um, you know, did we come from Adam and a garden or, you know, from the Fertile Crescent and there was, you know, two people or was, you know, did we come from Neanderthals first and then Homo erectus, like all of that kind of stuff. Uh, but also into some kind of like behavioral sciences. Um, do we have real free will or is some of our life determined for us? Free will versus determinism. Um, and then the inherent goodness of people or the inherent depravity of people, which this is a fun one for me. Uh, a lot of Christian people are going to go, no, the human soul is depraved without God. And then people that don't know God on that level, haven't accepted Jesus as their Savior, a lot of them are going to be like, no, people are inherently good. And it's like, yeah, that's duh. <laughs> because to become a Christian, to like go through the process of salvation, we have to admit our, our sinfulness and our need for a Savior. And if somebody would ever come to the point of really understanding just how sinful they were— they would cry out for a savior. So the fact that they haven't cried out for a savior tells us that they haven't evaluated just how sinful they and other people are. So yeah, that one's just funny to me. Like, it's like, well, yeah, duh. It's a, it's like a guy wearing a blue shirt next to a guy with a red shirt. And the guy in the blue shirt's like, you know, blue's really my favorite color. And the guy in the red shirt's like, that's interesting because red is my favorite color. And you're like, well, duh guys. So anyway, um, so that's, those are the four big areas of science. And that's the interest. And that's what the fun part about the creation uh, account um, is is how much of science it addresses. It touches four really big parts of science, all of outer space, all of the earth, and all of humanity. Could we, I'll do Chandler Bing, could it be any bigger than that? Was that a good Chandler? Whenever I was growing up, and people uh, and friends was still on TV. My group of friends always called me the Chandler, the uh, least good-looking but sarcastic of the three males. So, you know, I had that going for me. Look at now. I've got a podcast. <laughs> uh, so let's look at the six theories of the age of creation. So here's what these theories are trying to do. Take the biblical account in Scripture and make sense of what natural science data is telling us. This might be of particular interest for you. I hope that it is, um, because this is where we're gonna start answering the question, how old is the Earth? Again, really our options right now are 4.5 billion or 10,000, give or take. So here's the first one, the gap theory. The gap theory says that there was an original quite complete creation of the earth, perhaps billions of years ago, 
before the creation in Genesis 1-1. Some catastrophic event occurred, thus making the earth empty again, and then the creation account of Scripture is only meant to tell the story of our creation. So this is an old earth idea, old earth, young creation. And, and I'll try to differentiate that through all of them. It's old earth, young creation. So the idea then is, yes, we should be able to see that the earth is billions of years old, and you should be able to find fossils talking about an older creation that used to exist. But what Scripture is talking about, and this is kind of an important distinction on how we read Scripture, the argument for this would be the creation account of Scripture isn't meant to tell us everything. It's meant to tell us what happened in regard to our creation, that this isn't a history book that's supposed to tell us all things. It's just to tell us what God wants us to know about our creation, uh, that he created it, and here we are. He created everything, uh, and then he, then he created people, and here we are. Um, there, there's some exegetical struggles with this. Um, it's not impossible, though. The exegetical struggle would be connecting the creation of humanity in the same week as the creation of the earth. Um, so you'll have to look at some other things to kind of get there. One possibility is that um, Genesis 1 is actually a poem, which it is. It is a poem, and it is written in a distinctly different way than chapter 2. It's almost as though um, they, the, the Moses, who I think wrote it, started with this very popular poem and then put the creation story into it. It's like, here's the poem everybody knows, catch your attention, and then we're going to start with the actual account. So if you look at it that way, it's like everything's already existed. This is how Adam was made. And then uh, and what some people would say about this particular theory is what Scripture is teaching is not the history of all of humanity, but the bloodline of Adam. So we're not looking at all people that were made. It's that God made a special man and put him in a special garden and gave him a special wife. Um, and when they sinned, they had to leave the garden and go be like other people. But there were other people outside of the garden, and uh, that's who Cain married whenever he was banished. Um, and that it was this idea of its special person in Adam, special person in Noah, special person in Abraham, special person in Christ, and that everybody else now gets to be special through Christ. It's That's, that's kind of some of the ideas that we have to go through through the gap theory. Um, but it doesn't take everything literally. It doesn't take the scriptural account literally. Number two is the flood theory. Uh, this is talking specifically about Noah's flood, and I would say that this is not an, a standalone um, theological idea all by itself, but it is something that is necessary in understanding young earth, young creation. So by the way, old earth, 4.5 billion. Young earth, 6,000 to 10,000. Um, old creation, 4.5 billion. Um, young young creation, 6 to 10,000. I'll just clarify that. So the, the young earth, young creation needs... Noah's flood to have happened needs a cataclysmic worldwide flood to happen to answer a lot of the things, uh, a lot of the questions that natural science is bringing up. Where does the where do the rock layers come from? Well, uh, for over a year, 
the earth was covered in water. And so all of the sediments got mixed around and laid down in different order. And boom, there you go. Where do all of these uh, canyons come from that appear to be carved out from rivers over millions or billions of years? A single great deluge knocked it out of the way. So it, it answered, like, why are there dinosaurs? Well, because they all died suddenly and were pressed and fossils and they were, they were pressed. So a lot of the things that natural science is trying to answer with time, young earth, young creation is answering with a flood, a giant flood where waves are moving at a thousand miles an hour with, you know, tons and tons of pressure being put on stuff did in a short amount of time, uh, what would have taken millions or billions of years to do without it. Um, I mean, so that's, that's imperative to understand about the, uh, the flood theory side note anecdote. Um, if there was a worldwide flood 4,400 years ago, uh, how old do you think, um, the, you know, the oldest tree that we know of, how old do you think that tree would be about 4,400 years old, right? Well, last I checked the oldest tree that we're, we're familiar with is 4,200 years old. I don't know. Interesting. Uh, number three. The ideal time theory. This might be one of the more popular theories. Um, this is young earth, young creation. But the idea is that God made everything in maturity. So when he made the earth, he made it look as though it were billions of years old. When he made the universe, he made it look as though it was billions of years old. He built everything in maturity. And the thing that people always point to to this was look at Adam. He didn't make Adam as a baby. He made Adam as a full-grown man. Um, and like I said, this is highly popular, and there's two reasons for why it's highly popular. Um, it answers both of those questions of, of like taking Scripture literally, um, young earth, young creation, but also what do we do with all this natural science? Well, that's just how God made it. And, um, you know, there's some versions of this where, you know, dinosaurs didn't actually exist. God just put bones in the ground. That seems weird, and it's kind of reaching to me personally. Um but then there's other that's like before the flood, and again, this is imperative, before the flood, there was another layer in the atmosphere that, you know, added more oxygen to things, added more moisture uh, to the air, kind of created this super greenhouse effect and allowed animals to get a whole lot bigger. Food was more nutritious that allowed for all those kinds of things. Um, so it answers the dinosaur thing in, in that way. Um, so like I said, this is super popular. And here's the interesting thing, the other the other reason why this is so popular. You can't disprove it. You can't disprove it because it's like, yeah, you know, God made everything, but then he made it all look mature, which is why it looks mature. And there's a theory, man, I just, I just heard about this. It was like the last Thursday theory. Somebody like made a satirical um, point about this that was like everything... Um, you know, nothing existed until last Thursday, and that's when everything existed. But when God made everything last Thursday, he made you with all of the memories and all of this history. And it's like it's just pointing out the fact that you can't disprove the ideal time theory, uh, which a lot of people like. Number four, this one's also super duper popular, the age day theory. So the Hebrew word um, for day is the word yom, Y-O-M. That's how we would transliterate it. Typically, it means a 24-hour period, but it doesn't have to mean a 24-hour period. It just means a time frame. So when we say that God created everything in six days, it could just mean that God created things over six time periods. So that day, age day theory, God created in a series of acts over long periods of time 
that would match the geological and fossil records. So the, 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 the days then are much longer, maybe billions of years, but it's just tracking not the, the point of differentiating the six days isn't so much to differentiate, um, the 24 hour periods, but what was happening during these time frames. Um, like I said, that one's super duper popular, um, because that allows there to be a Christian viewpoint of old earth, old creation, um, and evolution. Uh, number five is the pictorial day theory or the literary framework idea. Um, so this has less to do with looking at the information and to look at how the author portrayed the information. Um, it regards the days of creation as more a matter of logical structuring than of chronological order. So we, as Western thinkers, need everything to happen chronologically. When we tell a story, this happened, then this happened, then this happened, then this happened. Eastern thinkers don't necessarily tell stories that way, um, particularly when it's something important like the creation of all things. They'll probably tell it in a different way to make a different point. So where we would want a textbook idea of what happened next, what happened next, what happened next, this is a theological book or people talking about their God. The point isn't necessarily to find a, a scientific explanation of when things happened as much to make the point God created everything. And when you go back into the poet, the, the poetry of the chapter, what you'll find is there's a lot of parallels between day one and four, days two and five, days three and six, and that they there's there's three pairings that have parallel ideas. So it's it's not even so this is the unique thing about this particular theory is it's not trying to deal with everything on a scientific factual level. It's just recognizing that sometimes literature is doing different things than giving a scientific explanation or historical um, or historical explanation. It's just doing another job. So it's not that um, we're 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 disagreeing on anything. We just need to understand what the author was trying to do with uh, with everything. And so what this does now is it pulls the literal aspect out of the creation story, and this makes a lot of people uncomfortable. And I totally understand why it would make you uncomfortable. I've heard it. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. I'm with you. If it's in the Bible, we have to deal with it. But part of understanding what's in the Bible is understanding how the Bible is written. So it's very possible that when Moses, I believe Moses wrote it, when Moses wrote this, his intention was never to give like a, a purely accurate account of six literal days of creation and a literal day of rest for the Lord. Instead, what he could have been trying to do was create this sense of awe with the newly formed nation of Israel. This is the God that pulled us out of slavery, the God that is our God, the God that we worship is not just any God. He's not just one God. He's not on par with Baal or any of the many uh, gods from Egypt. The God that we worship, the God that rescued us, our God, that's the creator God. He made everything. And, here, and so that could have been what Moses was trying to do. Um, and then the last one is the revelatory day theory. This would be a an old earth. So the, the pictorial day thing, it we can't call it old earth or young earth because it doesn't address that on that issue. Um, and the revelatory day theory, um, creation took a long time, but the revelation 
of the account was given over six days. So creation, old earth, probably old creation as well. Um, but Moses found out about it over the course of six days. So that's how he tells the story. Um, on the first day, I learned about, you know, trees. On the second day, I learned about birds or, or whatever. So those are the six, those are the six um, ideas of the age of creation. For me, my money, and look, they all have their, their struggles. Some of them are really good about answering the science. Some of them are really good about answering the scripture, um, but not all of them do a great job of answering both. So for me, I'm okay with looking at that gap theory um, as an option, which, you know, there was, and maybe not to the degree of like there was this whole other quite complete creation um, that was, you know, wiped out billions of years ago. But I think it might be possible that the earth existed for a long time. Um, and then what the Bible's tracking is Adam and that bloodline to Christ uh, and the introduction of the world into Jesus. So I, I think there's a lot of credence there. I would want to explore that idea quite a bit. I think the I think the nuance of that one is found in understanding the the literature. Um, I think the the science would be okay with it on that side. Um, and I like that the gap theory is able to answer both of the ideas fairly adequately if you can get the literature to make sense. But I totally get that you may not be able to. Um, so after that, I probably would lean more towards just the the ideal time, young earth, young creation um, idea. But you know, I, I just, I don't feel as though, I don't know. And that one's just because, because that one for me has some logical issues. Like why would God just put bones in the ground? That doesn't make any sense to me. Um, so, and so you do that, you got to do the flood theory. Um, I don't know. I'm looking at all of them. The pictorial day theory, which is just like the intention that Moses had in writing all of this I think that's probably something that we need to pay quite a bit more attention to. The, 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 there's so many genres of literature in Scripture that taking things at just a superficial face value isn't always the best approach. It just isn't. Um, and I'm not saying that, that we can't trust Scripture. It's that we need to understand what's happening in—we just need to understand what's happening. So I think that that pictorial day or that literary framework, that one's something that we probably need to take a lot, pay a lot of attention to as well. But as with a lot of things, probably the real answer is a mix of a lot of these things. Uh, man, this has been a long podcast already. <sighs> well, let's just try to truck through the rest of this real fast. Um, so we're going to look at evolution and intelligent design. Uh, and I'll look at intelligent design super quickly. So here's evolution. Um, it's, it's asking this question. At what point are the things that exist now the things that God made? And at what point have they changed and by how much? Evolution says from the beginning of life, all forms have developed by a gradual process. Creation would say, uh, which is the most literal view, is that every species was directly created by God. Evolution says everything has a common ancestor. The the little gut bubble that cried out, cl cl climbed out of the primordial ooze, eventually turned into everything that we see. 
Creation says God made everything with intention and design in mind. Um, there's two ideas in the middle there. One is theistic evolution, which would say that God created uh, in a direct fashion at the beginning of the process and ever since has worked indirectly through evolution. So it's like God created the gut bubble and the primordial ooze, but then kind of let things go from there. Um, and if you're going to uh, look at this viewpoint, you are old earth, you are old creation, you, you, you are using all the scientific data on age of the earth, you're using all the scientific data um, that is pointing to evolution. Um, one, of the one of the things that you have to deal with all around this idea, though, is how clearly um, in Scripture there is a difference between humanity and the rest of creation. This is a, this is a very important theological concept uh, that we see in the creation account that God made everything else and then he made humanity and he gave humanity dominion over the earth. Adam was charged with naming all of the animals. Um, and when Christ came, he came to save just the species of humanity, not everything else. The rest of creation, according to scripture, automatically worships God. We have the choice of freedom. So if you're going to fall into the theistic evolution camp, um, it does answer the faith idea. It gives you a perspective for the Big Bang. Um, it, it helps us figure out why nobody's been able to recreate creation, um, just putting you know, carbon and whatever in a thing and hoping life comes out of it. Nobody's been able to recreate it. Well, it's because it didn't have the breath of life that God requires for all things living to have inside of them. So it answers a lot of those things and the natural sciences, but it does it doesn't answer why humanity is unique in scripture. If we have a if we're just another great ape with the same common ancestors as gorillas and chimpanzees, why is why does scripture point us out as different? And now we've got to answer that question. Um, and the other one um, is progressive creationism, uh, which God created a series of acts along a period of time. Uh, another way to say it would be like this. It's not that God created, lions, tigers, leopards, and domesticated cats on day one. God created cats, uh, not the Broadway musical and not the awful movie um, with the anthropomorphized furry people, but like <laughs> he just created cats, um, felines. And over time, these that cat developed into lions, tigers, leopards, domesticated cats in Taylor Swift, all the cats. <laughs> um, and most Christians that are in this world, uh, this like scientific world, um, that are creationists, I'll say that most creationists ed are free to admit in something of, of about something called microevolution. We might also call it adaptation. We have seen, we have, we have monitored creation adapting to its surroundings. Charles Darwin famously had all of the different finches that had different beaks and all this kind of stuff. We, ha we are familiar with the idea that animals will adapt according to, to their surroundings, but they're still their animal. So those finches got new beaks, but they're still finches. Cats maybe got bigger, maybe got smaller, maybe got stripes, maybe got manes, but they're still cats. And so the progressive creationism idea is that basically God just created like the prototype version and then adaptations happened from there. And we may not have that original species anymore, 
but we have the remains of that species. Um, I think that there's a lot of credence into thinking about things that way. Uh, Because the the Bible talks about kinds. There's kinds of animals. It's not that God, you know, it's like God created the horse. And from there we got quarter horses, zebras, donkeys. You know, we just created, he created cow. And now we have water buffalo and yak and uh, Brahma bulls. Like, that makes a lot of sense to me. Intelligent design... Um, the, uh, the, oh, so man, I just don't have time to really dive into evolution. This is already so long, but to, to round out evolution, um, if you are a Christian person, the, the, and you, and you believe in the evolutionary process, the best that you're going to be able to come up with is theistic evolution that God just kind of ignited life and then let it go. Um, but now the pressure is on for you to start answering, um, why is scripture so clear that humanity is different than the other animals and the rest of creation? Um, and, um, answering the questions of deism, which is God, um, is distant when the Bible is very clear that God is active in creation. So those are two struggles that you're going to have to work through. Um, uh, if you don't have a more traditional viewpoint of creationism, which is either God made it all how we see it, or he made it pretty close to how we see it. And over time, things have adapted. Um, intelligent design is the other side of it, um, which is really, uh, just the point that the complexity of, of nature as we find it could not have arisen by chance. And the state of development of the universe and of certain elements in it, in particular, displays the sort of characteristics that would ordinarily lead us to recognize the presence of some intelligent activity. There are people who are not people of faith who even recognize it is absurd how much of a razor's edge we exist on. And if one thing was thrown out of balance, the whole, the whole all of creation would come tumbling down. If the earth was moved by a degree, if we were missing one element in our body, if the atmosphere didn't have one certain thing, like everything exists on a razor's edge. And some people have finally started to admit this is beyond mathematical coincidence. It couldn't have all happened by chance. There's something pointing to a creation in this. Um, so, you know, and then there's something uh, called irreducible complexity, which is the creation. Creation is so complex that it can't reduce anymore. Because um, if you were to reduce it to the point where you're, even a small part was missing, the whole thing would fall apart. Um, and yeah, so now there's this idea that, well, anyway, I don't I want to get into that. So um, Christian creationism does not need intelligent design. Um, you know, we, we exist because the Bible tells us to, or not, that's a weird way to say that. That was an awful way to say that is what it was. We believe that God created everything because the Bible says God created everything. Um, so we don't need intelligent design to be proven, but if it is proven, it does corroborate the point. So what are the implications of all of this? There are four, the four implications of God creating it all. The first, if it exists, it has value because God made it. Number two, God has had initial creative activity, but also later indirect workings. Number three, justification for scientifically investigating creation. In other words, it is a noble pursuit to pursue science because you, whether you believe it or not, are endeavoring to better understand God's creation. And number four, 
Nothing other than God himself is self-sufficient or eternal. There we have it. That is all of the information that I have about the doctrine of creation and the need for understanding God as creator. Again, we return back to our original question. Can we trust the Genesis account of creation? I think we can. I do think that we can, and I think that as people of faith, we should always be trying to find how the discoveries of natural science or behavioral science or anything else like that, new discoveries, fits into Scripture. I think there are legitimate exegetical techniques that we can use to make sense of time frames, um, to make sense of discoveries, whether it is old earth, young creation, whether it is young earth, young creation, um, with everything being created into maturity, whether it's something like um, theistic evolution, and we're just talking about using that term day as a, as a long-term um, period of time. Like, all of those theories fit quality exegetical techniques and make sense of what science is teaching us right now. So, yes, I do believe that we can trust the Genesis account. I hope that faith people and science people can continue to work towards the truth and understanding exactly what happened, if that is even a thing that is possible to understand. But I want to narrow it down to this question. So what do Christians need to believe? What do you need to believe to be to, to fall into foundational orthodoxy of Christianity. And I need to clarify, whenever I'm talking about need to believe, I am not talking about opinions. I am, I am talking about the kind of thing that is a matter of salvation. I'm talking about the kind of thing that if you were to utter it 500 years ago and you were wrong, you were going to get burned at the stake as a heretic. When I talk about what do Christians need to believe, in the creation discussion, there are two things that I think we need to believe. The first is that God created everything. The second is that God rules, actively rules everything. God made it, and now God is sovereignly ruling over it. I do not think that as a, as a foundation of salvation do we need to get into the specifics of time frame or when and how. Because that's the issue. When did it happen? How did it happen? I don't think salvation is hinged on when it happened or how that it happened. I don't think the the infallibility of Scripture is hinged on when it happened or how it happened. Because again, we have good exegetical techniques that answer it both ways. So I think that whenever we have these areas that could possibly be gray, the best thing to do is reduce it down to the doctrine. What's the doctrine? God made it. God rules it. And we are going to be people of peace on every step after that. So this has been the church question of the day. If you would like to have your church question featured on the podcast, you can email your question to questions at donmckeg.com. If you enjoyed the podcast, rate, review, and subscribe. Until next time, be blessed. We'll catch you later.